morning. <clears throat> I'm actually not going to say too much more about the um, debt retirement, only that between now and year-end, if we have a goal, it's to cover the rest of our fiscal year, which is through the end of April. So if we could cover two and a half months between now and year-end of the calendar year, by the end of December, that would be great. And it's about $2,000 per month. So if any of you are in a position to be able to, to do that, indicate debt retirement on the check that you put in to HOPE, and that would be great. We're in the middle of a series on the will of God from Romans chapter 12. Um, in that chapter, Paul leaves orthodoxy for right thinking, which has occupied his mind for the first 11 chapters, and moves to orthopraxy, which is right acting. Uh, so right thinking and believing gives way to right acting and behaving. And at this intersection, Paul focuses on the will of God, and we find ourselves learning about love. Uh, in your worship folder, there's some verses that we're going to uh, look at. Opens up, and it's not in this text. We looked at it last week. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. When it says love must be sincere, literally, we find out last week it means love must be without hypocrisy. Literally, love must not be hypocritical. And the point is, don't say you love someone and then not show it by serving. Love is very practical in the Bible. It's not so much what you feel as what you do. It's um, why charity is a really good translation for love. Charity we think of as something more active than love. Love, when we think of love, it's emotion. Charity, we think of something more active, more concrete. And that's why when we think about love, charity is a good, it's a good synonym biblically. In the context, spiritual gifts are in view. Um, we saw last week, talked about love languages. There's a book, Love Languages, and it indicates that we both speak and understand love in different ways. Um, for some of us, words communicate love. For some of us, touch or gifts or time or service. And the reason why Love Languages is a popular book is that we might speak one language and and the person to whom we speak love, they don't understand love in that language. So we express love by touch. And somebody else understands love by words. And so there's a disconnect. I'm saying I love you by this, and yet it's not connecting. And that's why it's interesting to know and important to know our love language. And biblically, spiritual gifts, that's really what they are. They're love languages, means by which we have been gifted and really empowered to communicate love in practical ways. Um, Mark looked at the text a couple weeks ago. It's what it says. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And it talks about different ways to express love. Prophesying, teaching, serving, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, leadership, mercy. 
we have different ways to communicate love. In the Bible, love is a verb. Again, it's something that you do more than something that you feel. To say you love and fail to show it is the hypocrisy that the passage is warning about. It says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The good that is described here when it says love must not be hypocritical, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The evil in the context is saying that there's love and not backing it up. Uh, And what it thinks of when it's talking about good, it's not private morality, but a public morality. The good in view in this context is serving others, meeting the needs of others. That's the good that we are to cling to. And the thing we are to abhor, the evil that we are to abhor, is hypocritical love. The passage encourages a voluntary, uncoerced concern for others. We think of the will of God then. We can break it down into three things. We'll look at them briefly. The will of God as expressed in actions and attitudes and thoughts. And we're going to begin with actions. It says in Romans 9, 9 through 12, be devoted. Share with God. Sorry, I'm sorry, Romans 12, 13. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Literally what it says, the needs of the saints sharing in. What we have in this section, it's a bunch of bullet points. It's bullet pointing expressions of what it means to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And what it's going to give us is a bunch of bullet points that express what that looks like in action. And this one says literally the needs of the saints sharing in. So present your bodies to God as living sacrifices. Use your gifts, the needs of the saints sharing in. And the image there is relieving the destitution of fellow Christians. And what Paul did is very practical. He was very concerned about the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So he did three missionary journeys. And what he did as part of those journeys, he communicated the state of the church in Jerusalem, which was destitute. Outside of Jerusalem, you might be able to eke out a living, but if you were a Christian in Jerusalem, you had a very difficult time making ends meet. And so there was a pocket of very destitute Christians. Paul cared very deeply about meeting those practical needs. So what he did, he he traveled through the Roman Empire, and he would tell the church in Corinth and the church in Thessalonica and the church in Philippi and the church in Colossae. Listen, let me tell you about the needs of the people in Jerusalem. And they heard about these needs, and then he said, we're going to take up a collection. And so when he traveled from place to place, he took up this collection, and then he brought it back to Jerusalem. That's the image here of the needs of the saints contributing to, sharing in, helping to relieve the destitution of those who were their brothers and sisters in another place to assist impoverished Christians there. It talks about practicing hospitality. Hospitality is opening your home. And literally what it says here is hospitality pursuing, pursuing. Don't let opportunities come to you. Go looking for opportunities to bring somebody into your home. Don't just open your wallet 
contributing to the needs of the saints, open your home. At that time, there were some natural protections in the church that made it a little bit easier to contribute to the needs of others and to practice hospitality. The deal in that time is you practiced hospitality with people you knew. The church was very small. They didn't have church buildings. They met in homes. So you learned about the needs of someone that you were in a living room with that lived close by. We come from all over Sioux Falls. We don't know one another very well. Some of us know each other well. Some of us don't from different parts. But in the early church, you knew people you went to church with because they came from your neighborhood. You weren't bust in. And there was only a small group of you you met in the living room. So you would learn about those needs. And there's a natural protection for that, isn't there? If you knew someone, if you're aware of somebody's needs firsthand, it's easier to be motivated to give compassion. Would you agree with me? Compassion is easier when there's a face attached. If you hear about this need, but you don't know the person, that's one thing. But if somebody is in a living room and they're saying to you, listen, I, I, I've embraced Jesus and I'm following him and my family put me out and I have nowhere to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have these needs and I'm really not sure where to turn. And in that context, there was a natural protection for people practicing hospitality. Can I get you a meal? Can I, can I do something for you? Or is, would this help? Would this? And there was a natural protection for that. Um, today, it's a little bit more difficult. You have, we have to sift through scores of appeals all over the place. They didn't have TV in those days. They didn't have mass mailings talking about this and that and all kinds of financial appeals. And so there was a natural protection for getting involved. Uh, there weren't that many people, but when somebody came around into the community, you knew about it. You opened your home to them. Even though there were natural protections, good intentions fell short of good deeds. Look what James says. What good is it, brothers, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The passage is making a simple point. Living faith is loving faith. If faith is real, it will flow through your hands, will pass through your wallet, and it will direct your feet. This isn't a should. It's not a should. It's a will. Living faith is loving faith. And if you were in that living room and you found out about the need, and if somebody, if you were in a position to do something, and if you were to say, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you, be warm and well-fed and it's not as likely that you would do that in that context, is it? Because the person is sitting right across from you. They live next door. And that's why there was some natural protection for that type of, that type of attitude. But what it says, in general, though, living faith will impact action by impacting attitudes. When we look at a, a passage like that, sometimes it is really, it's really straightforward, isn't it? 
pretty straightforward. It's if faith is alive, it's loving. Some people say, well, James is pushing the matter too far here. No, he really isn't. He's just making a simple point. Um, living faith is loving faith. And living faith will impact actions. It will impact actions, but it will impact action by impacting attitudes. Let's talk about the will of God, attitudes. That's what it says. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It says be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And the bullet points continue, literally what it says, to brotherly love, devoted. To brotherly love, devoted. Brother and sister were used within Judaism and really between Egyptian and Egyptian religion and Christianity as well. And what it's using here when it talks about um, brotherly love, it's a tender affection or the kind of affection that you have towards family. We'll experience family this week. And if we hear about things where the family, a member is in need, it will be pretty easy for us to be responsive in as much as we can we can listen or if we can help in other tangible ways. And what he's saying with that type of thing, practically helping one another do that. Um, devoted to that. Um, honor one another above yourself, literally to honoring one another. Lead the way. Be a pace setter in honoring one another. Don't lay back, but pursue that. Set the pace. Be a pace setter. Um, Never be lacking in zeal. It says to diligence, don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. And what it's, what it's describing here is a commitment to this type of loving action, not hesitant, but devoted, not lacking zeal. Um, keep your spiritual fervor. Literally what this says, in spirit, boiling. That's the word, boiling. You think of something that's boiling. It's active. It's, it's steaming, and that's the attitude that it's commending here. Uh, goes on and says, be joyful in hope, in hope rejoicing, um, patient in affliction, in sufferings remaining. When the Bible talks about suffering, it talks about being squeezed or compressed. And when you're in that type of situation, it's saying remain in that place. We can't always... Do what will allow us to escape uncomfortable circumstances. And sometimes when we do so, we leave other people behind. And that's why Paul writes to them, remain in those places, um, faithful in prayer. When it talks about being faithful in prayer here, it seems that there's a connection between prayer and endurance. It is both praying for the person, but the thrust of the prayer here, it's more about God, keep me in a place where I can continue to do the kind of things that love would do, serving one another in spirit boiling. Help me to keep going. It's easy to back away and back up. So when we put all these things together, here's what it says. Present yourselves to God, to brotherly love devoted, to honoring one another, leading the way, to diligence, not lazy, in spirit, boiling, in hope, 
rejoicing, in sufferings remaining, in prayer earnest, the needs of the saints sharing, hospitality pursuing. It's giving a picture of what it means to present yourselves to God, to abhor what is evil, and to cleave to what is good. And the early church listened. The early church was known for its love. There were extraordinary, generous, voluntary gifts that were brought, usually during worship. We read about them in the book of Acts, but it didn't just happen in the book of Acts. It happened when the church gathered. And these funds were administered and were delegated by church leaders who would take these gifts and would use them to meet the practical needs of people. And the early church provided welfare because once you embraced Christ in a large measure, you opted out of Social Security. In Jerusalem, you couldn't be part of the synagogue, and the synagogue was welfare. It was a place that you could fall back. The same thing in Roman society. So to become a Christian literally meant, as far as any material or living the good life, you were committing financial suicide. Um, And so what ended up happening, uh, people would bring these gifts, and they were able to use these gifts to provide welfare for the poor, the sick, orphans, and widows, those in prison, the needy, and the aged. The early church was boiling in this. And when there were several disastrous famines and plagues in Rome, most physicians would left the vicinity, but Christians stayed there. You know what ended up happening with the Christians? They ended up caring for the needy, and some died, but some others developed immunities. And so they're actually, because they stayed, were continually able to reach out and to provide care for the poor. And it was noted, and it was one of the reasons why the early church grew as it did. Uh, The early church was comprised of lower classes without a lot of political and economic power. Most of the people that became Christians were poor. And so the poorest of society in those days, Christians were very poor. And this was the, the reason the church reaching out was one of the main reasons for the unexpected success about Christianity. Christians expended themselves in works of mercy that frankly dumbfounded the pagans. Those outside of a relationship with Christ looked at it and said, I don't get this. I don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Because it wasn't that the church did it out of a sense of ought to. They weren't shuffling around and and kind of doing it because I have to, because somebody put the guilt trip on me and they made me sign up and my name's on the list and it's my turn and I have to go and I'll see you later. But they really listened to these bullet points. Present yourselves to God, to brotherly love devoted to honoring one another, leading the way, to diligence, not lazy, in spirit, boiling, and hope rejoicing, and sufferings remaining, in prayer earnest, the needs of the saints sharing, hospitality pursuing. The early church believed that God loved humanity. God loved people. They understood that that's what the Bible was saying when it says cling to what is good. Not just a private morality, but a public one, that when you express the love of God, you show things to people who have needs. 
And that's what the early church did. Society looked at it, scratched their head, and said, that is something. Um, they understood, Christians said, that God didn't demand ritual sacrifices. He wanted his love expressed in needs of compassion, practically. Um, Christians went about ministering to the sick, helping the poor, the widowed, crippled, blind, orphaned, and aged. Their care was so extensive that I read that Emperor Julian tried to copy the church's welfare program, tried to copy it. He said, well, let's look, look at what they're doing. Let's do this from an administrative governmental perspective. And they couldn't pull it off because for Christians it was love, not duty, that motivated them. And you can't drive with duty what needs to be fueled by love. And that's what the church was able to do and what society as a whole was unable to copy. The people of the Roman Empire were forced to admire the church, and this is what they said, look how they love one another. That's what was heard on the streets, in spirit boiling, and sufferings remaining. And it wasn't, again, a shuffling. It was they presented themselves to God as living and holy sacrifices and looked for ways to communicate love to others. Their attitude is captured by a prophecy from Isaiah. Look what it says in Isaiah 32. Isaiah prophesies that there's a king will return. I want you to see the character of the king and the character of the people who are citizens of this kingdom. It says, see, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert, and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. I really like this verse. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. I bet that's a verse you could remember. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. I'll tell you what noble means. Noble is literally voluntary, uncoerced concern for the poor and the oppressed. Here's the big thing. This word, it has to be voluntary. And it has to be uncoerced. There was an offering called the noble offering in Judaism. Now, there were some offerings you had to do, a sin offering, a guilt offering. It wasn't optional. If you committed a sin, you had to do an offering. But once the sin offering was taken care of, they had another kind of offering, which was called a free will offering. Another word for it is a noble offering. Noble means free will, voluntary and uncoerced. And once the sin offering was done, then you freely gave an offering to God. That's the sense of noble. And here's the verse. The noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. And what's at the heart of this thing is voluntary, uncoerced concern for the poor and the oppressed. That which the Roman Empire tried to copy but couldn't. 
because it has to be driven by love. Um, interestingly, um, a sin offering, like I said, had to be, it had to be done, and it had to be done first. And when the sin offering was taken care of, then the free will offering could be given. You never did the free will offering first. Take care of the sin problem first. Once that's taken care of, then do the free will offering. And I think we get that confused. You didn't use free will offerings to cover sin. That doesn't work that way in Judaism. It needs to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect offering for it to remove sin. And our service is not perfect. The good news is it doesn't need to be. Once we understand and believe in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and put our faith in that, our sin problem is dealt with. And what God would have us do is believe that. Why do we need to believe that? Because you're not going to do a free will offering if you're trying to be forgiven. That's the deal. Some of us are stuck in forgiveness. And the reason why we have no hand to reach out with is we're too busy taking our spiritual pulse. We're too busy trying to get forgiven. Jesus already died. His sacrifice was accepted as final. That's why he rose from the dead. Maybe it's time you started to believe it. You say, why? I need to struggle with forgiveness. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because as long as you're struggling to be forgiven, it will impede your ability to serve. That has to be wholehearted. You can't serve and try to use service to get forgiven. Does that make sense? Your service will not cause you to be forgiven. His sacrifice will believe in that, and then that ends up freeing us up to to do something, not because we have to, but because we want to. That's the way it works. Hate what is evil in the context of Isaiah. It's the evil who destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. Biblically, that's what evil looks like. It can be private, but oftentimes it's public. Evil, they say, to a bore is when somebody's needs are valid. And we're in a position to do something. And we either turn away or, you know, or we are so bent on getting what we want. You know what I mean? And some of us, we get stuck. But at least let's understand what the Bible talks about when it says, abhor what is evil. It's not talking just about private immorality. It's talking about public immorality. Being in a position to do something for someone and not doing it. Turning a blind eye. That's what it says when it says abhor. Let love be without hypocrisy. Do what you can. Cling to what is good. The noble man makes noble st- The noble man makes noble plans. And by noble deeds he stands. I bet you could remember that verse. What does it say? The noble man makes noble plans. And by noble deeds 
he stands. Voluntary, uncoerced concern for others. The will of God is uncoerced concern for the poor and the oppressed. That's nobility and that's love. Here's the deal. Thoughts, the right thoughts, will lead to the right attitudes, which will lead to the right actions. And this is the way it works. This is the will of God. It expresses all three. You can't just have the right actions without having the right attitudes. You can't have the right attitudes without having the right thoughts. Uh, Living faith will impact actions by impacting attitudes. And living faith will impact attitudes by impacting thoughts. What kind of thoughts? Thoughts that are rooted in God's mercy and God's love. Um, You say, you know what, Mike? I have a long way to go in terms of loving other people. I get that. What would we do if we wanted to be more loving? We would try to foster the right, or put ourselves in a position to get the right attitudes. And that comes from thinking the right thoughts. It says, I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy. This is what it says. I urge you, therefore, brethren, in light of God's mercy, to present your bodies living and holy sacrifices, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. If you want to end up being in a place where you're giving more, it begins here, rooting your faith in God's mercy and in God's love. That's the place that will lead to voluntary, uncoerced concern. Um, Like what Thoreau said, for every thousand people hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root. How do we strike at the root of selfishness? What's at the root of the problem? What's at the root of the solution? What's at the root of the solution is thoughts. Thoughts lead to attitudes. Attitudes lead to actions. So you're saying, Mike, so what should I do? Make room for the promises of God. When's the last time you paged through 40 days with the Ten Commitments? Say, commitments, Mike, I need to know about commandments more than I need to know about commitments. No, you don't. No, you don't. It's God's commitments and promises. The understanding of his mercy and love. That will change your thoughts. And your thoughts will change your attitudes. And your attitudes will change your actions. For every thousand people hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one person striking it through. You want to strike at the root of the problem? Make room in your mind for God's mercy and love. Again, there's a number of different promises, a number of different ways to package promises here. We talked about the Ten Commitments. God sees you. God sympathizes with you. God deals gently with you. God loves you. God changes you. God chooses you. Good is ahead of you. Good is guaranteed to you. God gives you the power to persevere. God gives you the power to be content. 
No joke. I don't know if there's a day that I don't think of those, especially the first four. You say, you know what, Mike? I feel really selfish. You know what? Here's here's the deal. Let's try try an experiment. I want you to think of a place that you're hung up in your Christian life. Maybe it's in terms of giving. Maybe it's in terms of giving time. I don't know what it is. Try this. God sees you. He understands why there's the pull. Not only does he see you, he sympathizes with you. You see, Jesus entered a body and he understands what it's like to be pulled. And he deals gently with you. He doesn't, he's not harsh and he's not punitive. He understands and he loves you. He wants you to come to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Leave, making room for those things helps, well, you know what it does, helps your thoughts, helps you change your attitude, your attitudes helps change your actions. Really gets to thoughts, look what it says, Romans 12, 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If the fruit is love, the roots are in God's love and mercy. This is the point of Romans 12. In light of God's mercy, give yourselves to God. When you give yourself to God in mercy, you serve others in love. We've said this before, but it's absolutely true. The fear of hell and judgment is no reason to serve God. I'm going to say that again. The fear of hell and judgment is no reason to serve God. It doesn't lead to voluntary, uncoerced concern, and that's what God wants. Um, You cannot fear God's judgment and experience God's will. I'll say that again. And again, it's not all or nothing. I'd say to to the extent that we fear God's judgment, we cannot experience his will. If we're supposed to present our bodies in light of God's mercy, then consciousness or fear of God's judgment will lead us not to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. Um, the mercy of God is at the roots of the will of God. Last passage, look what it says in Second Peter. I'll read through this and we'll be done. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sin. We looked at this last week, but I'm just going to reiterate it briefly. How do we access transforming power? Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, so that through them you may escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So if you want to tap God's transforming power, you need to lay hold of God's promises. Through these, his very great and precious promises, 
we're able to participate in the divine nature. What if you wanted not to be so selfish? Escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. What do you need to grab onto to escape the corruption of the world? The same thing. His promises. How well do you know his promises? How often do you think about them? I'd say ratchet it up. Ratchet it up. Be brilliant in the basics. Be a promise professional. Make all kinds of room. And, and the Ten Commitments are a good place to start. Um, that's how we access the transforming power. The path of righteousness begins with faith in God's promises. Then it says faith. And to, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith in God's promises, goodness. Goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness, love. I want to close with this question. What do you, what do, you do then if you are lacking? What's at the root of the problem? See what it says here? If these qualities are yours, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. What does the text say? And has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. We're really back to noble, aren't we? You cannot do a noble offering if the sin offering hasn't been completed. Be clear about your forgiveness. You don't know what I did yesterday. You don't know what I did last night. Be clear that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is enough. God is extending forgiveness to you. And you know what your deal is? You need to start believing it. Sometimes we think, well, well, God could never forgive what I did. Really? You understand how arrogant that is? Standing at the base of the cross and saying, nice try, Jesus, but it really couldn't cover what I do. Don't do that. Be clear about forgiveness. Because being clear about forgiveness is the foundation. Mercy of God is at the root. And then to the root, when your thoughts shift, it begins to impact your actions, your attitudes. And your attitudes to impact your actions. Devin, come on up. Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us about your mercy and your love. You would have us root our faith in these things. Doing so will gradually, progressively, not all at once, but they'll begin to change our thoughts, to soften our heart. Our attitudes will change. Our actions will change. God, we're not the people that we want to be. We really would like to be more caring, like to be more compassionate, like to be more like Jesus. But there is a way to make progress. You tell us on the basis of mercy to do that. I ask that we do that so we could experience your good, pleasing, and perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen.